This is a Federal News Network podcast. This week, the Defense Department shut down Commercial Virtual Remote. That's the cloud-based collaboration service it set up to help employees telework during the pandemic. CVR was always meant to be temporary, but it worked so well that it pushed the military services to speed up plans to move the workforce to long-term implementations of Office 365. Those projects are now years ahead of schedule. Imagine that. Danielle Metz is the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what the department learned from CVR. I think that the driving force was that we had this extraordinary situation that really highlighted a priority where everything else kind of softened in the background. And so it was a rallying cry for everyone to come together and say, we do need help in terms of figuring out how we're going to get collaboration tools to our remote workforce so that they could use their personal devices, which is something that we've never allowed before government furnished uh, devices, and that you can talk to whomever, not only within the department, which is kind of a game changer, but to our federal partners sponsoring whole of government, as well as to um, our mission partners uh, internationally. I think the other key thing was that this wasn't mandated. It was an option, but it was kind of like this organic type groundswell. When it started getting really good with CVR that you were able to do all these things, word got out more and more people started actually using it to the point where then that became a tipping point for the department to recognize we need to figure out how to be able to deliver IT and redesign our IT so our workforce can use it regardless of where they are. So they're not tethered to a work location or their workstation. Um, And so those are some of the goodness that you're seeing in terms of how we are creating our enduring solution of DoD 365 cloud environment with the ability in a more secure way to be able to eventually connect anywhere with anyone on any device in our DoD 365 cloud environment. Yeah, and you brought up that sort of sudden need for people to be able to work on personal devices and GFE. You're not going to get 2.3 million CAC readers out to the field very quickly. So how much innovation did you have to do around the identity and credentialing space to, to make this work? And does any of that carry forward into future projects? So for the CVR piece, because it was on a commercial environment, what we were able to do is work with the DoD CISO. We were able to create a security posture and some exceptions to policy. And so we have multi-factor authentication, not necessarily CAC to be able to do CVR. The CVR is just Microsoft Teams. Moving forward, those are exactly what we're working on in partnership with DOT&E and U.S. Cyber Command, uh, doing a number of pilot efforts with red teaming, um, really taking to heart the fact that we need to have this continual testing to inform decisions so that we can spiral out those incremental capabilities. And that's what's been happening in the backdrop as the forefront has been CVR for the past year. Now CVR is going to sunset uh, June 15th, and in its place, we'll have DoD 365, um, where we have roughly about 80% of the department's workforce already migrated into that environment. We'll continue to rapidly migrate the, the rest. And then on top of that, we have a good handle of capabilities already in that environment with the pathway to be able to continue to spiral additional capabilities. You mentioned this was and it always was an optional service. Some people did use Zoom, Cisco, other other things. But my impression was the vast majority of the department's workforce was on CVR and Teams. 
one of the incredible things about it to me is I think it's the first time I can remember the entire department converging around a single enterprise solution for anything. Yes. And I, I wonder, is, is that mostly just because nobody had time in the beginning to roll their own? Or were there other cultural factors starting to come together that, that made military departments and defense agencies more accepting of, of big enterprise solutions like this? I really think that it it was the extraordinariness of the situation with that pandemic. And it was a feeling of we only can do this once for all instead of each one of us trying to figure out how to do for ourselves, um, which is typically when we have time, the luxury of time, that's our default. The experience of CVR has shown that uh, working together as an enterprise really does work. And it's the best for the department because, you know, particularly as we try to on our journey to become more joint across the board and really harness the goodness that uh, and the pockets of excellence that we have, if we're able to bring all that together and be able to figure out those common challenges for many, instead of individually trying to have to figure it out, you save so much in time. You are able to get speed of capability to the warfighter, and that's really what this is all about. How challenging was budgeting for this? The, the last number I heard was you were on the order of $100 million per six months if you were going to keep this going, which probably means you spent north of $100 million in the first year. It's not easy necessarily to come up with that kind of money in the year of execution. Was that difficult? Uh, yes. <laughs> when you talk about any of those numbers, yes, it is. Uh, for the first uh, six months, it was a no-cost extension from March to September. And working with partnership with Microsoft, as well as when Congress enacted the, the CARES Act and the ability for the department to reprioritize dollars, we were able to do a nine-month extension to CVR, which was about $100 million. Some of the additive costs that we had in the original March to September uh, 2020 timeframe was that we paid for uh, cyber defenders to be able to defend and monitor the CVR environment because we take cybersecurity so seriously. And so it was a partnership with our cybersecurity service provider, C5ISR, that was the the, the CCSP for, for CVR. And all of the work that they've done to be able to defend that environment is going to translate into how we defend the DoD 365 cloud environment. But what this showed in terms of CVR proper was that we knew that this was a standalone capability. It was just Microsoft Teams. It was in the aisle to the commercial environment. So it had limitations because that was by design because it was fitting a very specific need. The DoD 365 cloud environment goes for the totality of our controlled unclassified information is an integrated collaboration office suite productivity. So Teams, Outlook, all the Microsoft applications, et cetera, with the additional security that we didn't necessarily have in CVR, just because it was an extraordinary circumstance. And by default, ended up being temporary because we knew that we weren't going to be in this extraordinary circumstance for a very long time. And as you start to move from something that really truly is a DOD-wide enterprise service to something that is more federated, do you lose any of the enterprise goodness, whether that's economies of scale or ease of collaboration or anything else? Well, we have been fortunate in terms of having the Defense Enterprise um, Office Solution BPA. So a number of the Office 365 licenses 
the minimum mandatory cybersecurity baseline tools that we have. Most of the DOD was able to use DOS. We have Microsoft Jello 3, and then the Navy was able to use their uh, Microsoft ESI. So we have been able to garner efficiencies of scale from a contracting perspective. As current Microsoft contracts end, we can onboard those to either DOS or to the uh, to the Navy piece, but the preferences to the DO. So we are maximizing from that perspective. I think the more challenging piece is the fact that now we have more tenants in this space. We really have to work hard to what I'll call manufacture the ability to have seamless interoperability and collaboration. It was easier in one, but even when presented some security issues, we currently have 13 tenants now. 13 is probably not the right amount. And I think over time, we'll be able to optimize that to a more reasonable number. And so I, th- I think that there is a commitment from um, the military services through DISA, realizing that now that we're in the cloud, this is shared space. Even though you have your own individual tenants, a risk to one is a risk to all. And so there is a complete understanding in terms of a, a continued partnership with our service cyber components under U.S. Cyber Command and Joint Force Headquarters, Doden, and the continued partnership with GOD CIO and uh, the MILDEP CIOs. Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. For more of the interview, including plans for Office 365, check out this week's edition of On DOD at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. 
uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that 
The idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. 
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.